aware of the feeling of yourself sitting. And being grounded in the awareness of posture, open to sounds as they appear, the louder sounds, the subtle ones, the silence between the sounds. Notice how effortlessly and spontaneously the sounds are known when the mind is undistracted. Notice the breath appearing in the same way that sounds do. The sensations of the breath, simply another arising appearance, known spontaneously. Each particular sensation within the breath, known effortlessly when the mind is undistracted. The flow of sensations simply appearing and changing. open to any other predominant sensations. 
noticing whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. Noticing if there's a reaction to the pleasantness or unpleasantness. You can use a soft, transparent mental note to connect with each breath or each sensation. And also notice any arising mind object, thoughts, images, emotions, different mind states. Noticing how in each moment, simply something else being known. Experience in the body, experience in the mind. That any particular moment of experience arises and then changes, passes away. A flow of empty phenomena rolling on. If the effort feels too tight, relax into the spontaneous nature of awareness. It's happening by itself. If the attention is too slack, is not present, connect more precisely with each arising object.
you have any questions about your practice? As fleeting and what? Fast, quick. Um, is it possible to sustain awareness of thinking? It seems that I'm either aware of the results of thinking, or I'm, I'm in physical reaction or uh, emotional reaction, or I'm lost in thought and wake up and the thought's gone. I think that is the usual uh, pattern for most people. Um, and there's no need, once you become aware of a thought and the thought disappears, uh, there's no need to try to hold on to it in order to be aware of it. Uh, but there are situations where um, the thought might have a lot of momentum, you know, a lot of uh, strength behind it, and the mindfulness is strong. Where you're sitting back, it's almost like watching the subtitles in a movie. You know, where the thought's going on, but you're really aware of it. Um, and the same, the same is true with images in the mind. But I think that's less common than the thought self-liberating in the moment of being mindful. The one, uh, one way that Mahasi Saida used to teach the noting with respect to not only thoughts, but images, you know, little stories in the mind, was to have people note what's happening in the story. So in other words, if you're meeting somebody, you would note meeting. If you're talking to somebody, you would note talking. <laughs> yeah, and so you're just kind of watching the movie, but mindful of what's happening, rather than lost or identified or caught up. Usually, though, in the moment of that kind of mindfulness, it's, it's gone, you know, because we're not particularly feeding it then. A couple of questions about matter. Uh, one is when we uh, are asking the jhana factors to arise, do you do that just once during the sitting or a few times? Or? You can do it several times. Uh, and when sometimes they arise, they arise for some time and then different factors. And often it's followed by sleepiness rather than more wakefulness. And I was wondering if that's not a connection to the object or the sense of I, I, I don't think it's particularly connected. Um, in, in the metta practice, um, when it's being done uh, as a samadhi practice, one way of working with it is through the development of different jhanic factors like applied thought, sustained thought, rapture, happiness, one-pointedness. These are the, these are the qualities, the mental factors uh, of samadhi. And so as one is working with those factors, uh, Mark was saying that uh, often in the calling of them up, it's followed by sleepiness. And is there a kind of connection between that and um, and I, I would I would stay qu quite connected uh, with the phrases, so that there's real uh, 
those first two factors of vitaka and vichara, which can be translated as connecting and sustaining. You know, to have those strong, which uh, actually is an antidote to sleepiness. It's the same thing in the Vipassana practice. in terms of these factors of, of samadhi, the, the jhanic factors, uh, when you feel that the concentration is particularly weak or the mind scattered, it's not resting in the moment uh, easily, you might give more emphasis to the development of these two factors. In, in classical Buddhist language, it's called initial application and sustained application. But what it really means is connecting in the moment of the object arising. So there's a conscious intention to connect and then to develop the factor of sustained application, which is the sustaining of the attention for the duration of that object. For example, the in-breath or the out-breath. So you, you might be working quite intentionally on connecting and sustaining, connecting and sustaining breath after breath, or with a sensation, or with a sound even. And these two factors are the, uh, the core factors of a concentrated mind. Joseph, I have a feeling that if I try to practice all of the good practices that are being given to me, I would spend all of my inner time spinning in there like a machine. Yes. What would I do with all the things that are passing mm. by me? Pick the one that's most appealing. <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean, because what is being presented, the Dharma is vast, you know, and you could think of all of the teachings as this vast array of skillful means. And it's always to help bring something or other into balance. So if the mind's too much this way, it's suggested do this and it'll come to balance. If you're off on this side, do the opposite and it'll come into balance. So you need to pick, you know, or, and it's really intuitive. And as your practice continues, it's almost as if the mind itself knows uh, what, what is needed. Uh, to come to balance. Uh, it can get very confusing if you, if you try thinking it all out. What should I do now and what should I do now? Um, as a general principle, uh, I would keep it simple. The difference between anticipation and noticing intention. Um, I think we use the word anticipation to mean different things. And so it depends in what way that's being used. Intention, in the way we've been talking about it, is that quality of willing in the mind for something to happen as simple as a movement. You're sitting and there's 
a willing, a volition to stand. And that's a mental quality, that's a mental energy which effects the movement. We could use the word anticipation in the same way. It has a slightly less volitional connotation, but it's in that family. You know, you're sitting and you anticipate the standing. So that could be in the sense of knowing you're about to stand. But I think more often anticipation is not that, but rather the mind jumping ahead of itself, not being in the moment, but lost in, lost energetically in this what's going to happen. So our mind is ahead of ourselves, toppling forward. A very uh, clear and obvious physical manifestation of anticipation uh, is rushing. You know, is you hear the lunch bell, you know, and you can feel yourself going to lunch, even if you're, you know, pretending to to be mindful. <laughs> From the inside, you know, this kind of that inner, which is an anticipation you know, of, of going to lunch, but it, it pulls us forward, it, uh, it pulls us out of balance. That's quite different than noticing the intention to do something, which in that case, you're very balanced, very centered, the intention arises, you're aware of the intention, the movement happens, you notice the movement So it really has to do with that toppling forward of one's energy. Okay, the, the question was that even in her quietest moments she is aware of these very uh, subtle, fleeting thoughts and wonders if you've ever been in the moment. The presence or absence of the thoughts is not, does not determine whether or not you're in the moment. It's really a question of how aware you are of those thoughts being present. Because those thoughts, like any other object, like louder thoughts, or sounds, or sensations, simply another arising appearance. The fact that they're so subtle means that they often go unnoticed. So it's the unnoticing uh, that's the problem, not the fact that they're arising. And as you've said, as the mind gets quieter, just as a natural function of the deepening of the practice in that way, we begin to notice more and more things which were previously unnoticed. Uh, So actually the fact that you're seeing it is quite a good thing. So take delight in the fact that you're seeing it rather than judging the fact that they've been there. (laughs) 
And again, it's, it's amazing because not only do we become aware of these more subtle wisps of thoughts, we also become more aware just of the most subtle reactions of mind to what's happening. You know, slight attachment, slight resistance, slight aversion, which also keep us from that place you could say of perfect or of natural equilibrium. You know, and the practice is really uncovering on more and more subtle levels what takes us out of that place of inner stillness. But it's really a fascinating and in a way a joyous process to begin to see what was previously unseen. Now it's making conscious what was previously unconscious. I think that's why, you know, the, the word Buddha really means awakened one. And, and you can see the process happening uh, right now that we're actually waking up to things that we had previously been asleep to. Okay, last question. Talk about wakefulness. <laughs> yeah, right. It's unusual for me, actually. Um, I find I can sit with my eyes open. But I have a, a question about that. Uh, I know this practice is generally done with the eyes closed. Am I getting value from sitting with my eyes open? Absolutely. Right. It's it's totally, completely, absolutely fine. <laughs> no, it's the, it, there's a different feel to it because it is a slightly different experience. You know, it's different when your eyes are open or your eyes are closed. Right. But that, that's a misperception because things are happening all the time. You don't, you don't die in the moment that you open your eyes. <laughs> you know. But it is different. I mean, if we've been in the habit, as, as most of us have been, of sitting with our eyes closed for a long time, there's a certain kind of experience that's very familiar. You know, and so when you're sitting with your eyes open, it's a different experience, but the quality of awareness doesn't change. The fact of things, of all phenomena, whatever it is, being impermanent and selfless doesn't change. It's one of the, one of the great lessons of Dharma practice, and hopefully, you know, in this long retreat, it becomes more and more obvious. From the perspective of the Dharma, and awareness, everything is totally equal. It doesn't matter what's arising. Whether it's a sight or sound or smell or taste or thought or emotion or image, it's just another phenomena arising, being known. And so as you're sitting with your eyes open, you don't, you don't necessarily have to be focusing on sight as the object, although that could be a possibility too, but you could sit with your eyes open 
and still be with the breath, the awareness of your body posture, open to sound. And if the feeling tone of the experience is different, that's fine. Simply be with the experience as it's presenting itself, being known. And the same... (laughs) So the same laws at work. You know, when there's mindfulness and no attachment to what's arising, the mind is free. When we're lost and attached and identified, we're contracted. So it's the same, it's the same thing. And over time, I think you'll, if, if you continue with it, you'll get used to it and see that the same subtlety can happen. In many traditions of practice, where it's taught that people, you know, the sitting practice is with the eyes open, Insight happens, enlightenment happens, awakening happens. So it's not a it's not a function of the eyes. There is one other way of working with the afflictive emotions as they arise. In addition to the clear recognition, acceptance, the seeing the conditioned nature, how they arise out of conditions and pass away. enlarging the time perspective so that we see them in the context of impermanence. We can also look directly at the way or the place from which we're relating to these emotions. As a simple example, a situation arises either in our actual experience or as a memory. Situation arises and we have some emotional response to that situation. Could be anger, it could be sadness, it could be happiness, whatever. Usually what our mind does is revolve around these first two aspects the situation and our response. Something happens, we get angry. In the anger, we think about what happened. In thinking about what happened, we get more angry. And so we're caught in this loop. A way out of this particular loop of afflictive emotion 
would be to change the perspective from this first and second aspect, the situation causing the emotion, to a third aspect, which is the understanding of how we're relating to the emotion. From that perspective, how am I relating to the anger? How am I getting hooked? How am I getting caught? How am I getting identified? From that perspective, the situation which is ostensibly causing the emotion is irrelevant. We're no longer throwing out tendrils of concern or blame or even consideration about the actual situation. We're simply looking at the emotion itself and the way we're relating. Sometimes a question like, how am I getting caught in this? How am I identified? Is enough to shift the perspective from looking back at the situation to stepping outside of the identification with the emotion. It's as if we move, if this were positions on a line, on a scale, we move from the consideration of one and two, the situation and the response, to two and three. The response, the emotional response, and our relationship to it. We ask the question, how am I getting hooked? Or how am I getting identified? From a place of interest, not a place of judgment, and also not expecting a particular answer. The purpose of the question is not to get an answer, but to change the place from which we're looking at the experience. And very often, simply that change of perspective is enough to free the mind from that identified involvement. It's particularly helpful to see that as long as we are throwing mind tendrils back on the situation, it actually keeps us locked in. It puts responsibility for how we're feeling on something external to ourselves. Rather than seeing the bondage of freedom completely depends on the way we're relating to the emotion, not about the situation. Sit in a relaxed and easy way, settled into the body, very simply, resting in the awareness of the body posture, In that simple awareness, open to sounds, noticing how spontaneously they're known, 
open to each breath as it appears. The mind is inherently radiant and pure, unobstructed. When we're undistracted, each experience is known quite effortlessly, spontaneously, exactly. Rest in undistractedness, open to sounds, open to each breath, to whatever sensations arise. Notice the changing nature of the sensations. Notice any reactions of mind to the sensations. Is there attachment? Is there contraction? These themselves are simply other arising appearances. Staying grounded in the awareness of your body posture. Open to the appearance, to the arising of any mental phenomena. Notice thoughts as they come and go. Different emotions. The healing emotions, the afflictive emotions. Moment after moment, something else is being known. Did you hear the question in the back? Just to clarify one point before responding, uh, it might not be resistance because we can also get involved uh, with a afflictive emotion through attachment. We can, in other words, suppose there's some strong emotion with a story and we're really believing the story. And so it's not so much resistance to it as identified involvement in it. So it could be on that side as well, as well as kind of pushing it away.
So that would be one thing to check out, to see actually what's going on. I would certainly notice um, the response, whatever it is, if there is resistance to it, uh, to become aware of it, to notice it, to see what happens, to see if the noticing of the resistance is enough to allow the resistance to go and then to go back simply to feeling whatever the emotion is. You just want to be careful that you don't make it too complicated because you could get into a regression of reactions, you know, aversion to the emotion and then aversion to the aversion <laughs> and so on down the line. And it could get very complex. So if you can notice it simply, I think that's a good idea, then go back to whatever the original emotion was. But I think you can also use uh, some form of the question I mentioned in the beginning as a way of stepping out of the identification in one fell swoop. And so, for example, my experience has been at times when I ask a question like, okay, there's some emotion, how am I getting hooked? The very space from which that question is being asked is no longer identified with what's going on. The very asking of the question, if there's genuine interest, the very asking of the question has taken one out of the identification or reaction to the emotion. And so that's why I suggested that possible tool of practice. So in both ways, the, the only caution is not to get too complicated. And just one other thought, as with uh, emotions like confusion or chaos or uncertainty, where we step back and we just frame the whole thing, not trying to uh, stay pinpointed on any one aspect, in a situation like you described also it's possible, you see the emotion, for example, anger or fear, whatever, and you see the resistance to it, and it feels like it's getting quite complicated and you're not quite sure you know, how to get balance in it, you can step back from the whole thing and frame that whole situation as something being known. The question was uh, about how we can investigate in a way that doesn't generate thinking. Well, there are two aspects that come to mind. One is either through the use of an explicit question, like I mentioned, or without the actual question arising in the mind, but the attitude of the question as a vehicle for a more careful looking. And so it's not thinking about it. We're not thinking about how am I getting hooked. The question is simply a way of directing the mind 
to look at or to feel what's going on. And in that respect, the process, and this is something you can play with and, and experience, the process is more intuitive than discursive. Which means that we just look with increasing interest, with increasing precision, with increasing exactitude, and sometimes we see something that we didn't see before. You know, and, and that comes intuitively, it doesn't come from thinking something out. There may be thoughts about it. And so as we begin to see in, more intuitively what it is that's going on, for example, when I was talking about not recognizing certain emotions, you know, and then in the moment of intuition of what it, oh yeah, that's whatever, unhappiness, or that's embarrassment, or that's... The thought may come as an expression of that intuition, and that's fine, just to see it. You don't want to get involved in a long discursive patter about it. So it's mostly thinking of this investigation as a more exact awareness, see, seeing the exact quality of the knowing, and trusting the intuitive side in which things just come in the proper moment, rather than the result of a thought process, and learning to trust that. There's something that I've learned over many years of doing interviews, it's really the same process. In the beginning, there was much more concern with kind of having it all figured out, or thinking I had it all figured out. And over the years, really learning to just be hearing what's going on with really a, a quiet mind, and then seeing what comes out of my mouth. <laughs> now, you may have found that more or less helpful. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow it feels like the intuitive wisdom is more connected than the discursive. I think it's both of those. That when the thoughts come about something like you described, a long forgotten memory which seems somehow significant just in terms of your understanding yourself, uh, as the thoughts come, 
you want to know that you're thinking rather than simply being lost in a reverie about it. It's possible to know that you're thinking and allow that thought process to happen for some short period of time. One of the things that I found is it's usually very clear when it's simply becoming repetitive uh, rehashing, which happens quite quickly actually. The length of time in which we're really having creative, original, insightful thoughts, it's a limited period of time. <laughs> and those are useful. They really are. I mean, they can, they can bring about an understanding. Notice that it's happening. Notice when it goes over the line into just indulging the rehash. And at that point, it's not so helpful anymore. That, then it's uh, really just getting lost or identified with that thought process again. Uh, so it's really uh, from both sides. that it's not available through the meditative... I think as uh, the question before and, and from my own experience, I think that these psychological level insights do come you know, when the mind is quiet. And it's more a question perhaps of uh, the degree to which we explore them or not. You know, I think these intuitions uh, arise in terms of memory, in terms of understanding you know, patterns in our lives. From the meditative point of view, we wouldn't spend a long time exploring the implications. So we would let it come, we would connect with it, letting it effect its transformation within us, but without, uh, you could say, going into the details or exploring the details and ramifications, which might be better done on a therapeutic level. Uh, but in terms of those psychological insights arising, uh, there are certainly times in practice when uh, they do come in and often come with uh, a lot of clarity and depth.
Um, in my understanding of the teachings, it's as, it's as if the Buddha laid out the framework for the practice and the developing of insight. It's rare in the texts uh, that it talks about the specific things, the specific content of what it is that's going to arise. Uh, but the common experience in practice, and this is part, I think, of the living transmission from one, one generation of practitioners to the next, uh, the understanding of the different kinds of contents that arise and the working through them. So I think it's very much part of the living tradition. In the text, it's sort of the, the overall schema you know, of, of how this is happening and the kinds of insights, meditative insights, to derive from them. So that's how I understand it. I think most... Uh, this is the value, I think the very great value, in the course of practice of working with a teacher. You know, because as, as we work with people who have done the practice, sort of that transmission of experience about the different kinds of content that arises gets passed on. And I think that this has happened, you know, historically. Ha, 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 ha. 
I think, that, I think that that way of framing it to yourself uh, is actually creating some of the difficulty. Uh, that it doesn't have to do... It's not an issue of core. Uh, it's, an, it's an issue of conditioning. And that we all share very complex conditioning of all the different kinds of feelings and emotions that arise. And so just as you expressed, there are times when the heart is very open and loving and friendly and that has been the result of some conditioning. There are other times when we're irritated and annoyed and angry and ill will and doubting and that's simply other conditions which are arising. When it says that the nature of the mind, the essential nature, is radiant and pure, it's not talking about the level of these conditionings, which are like the clouds passing through. It's talking about the clear, unobstructed nature of awareness itself. And that's really the insight that becomes more obvious in Vipassana practice, where we're simply with things being known. And we can see that the knowing itself is unobstructed. It gets clouded or, or obscured by different conditions that arise, you know, the, the different um, emotions that have been conditioned in our lives. So I would take it out of the realm of the nature, <laughs> the nature of my heart is rotten. <laughs> because I think that's just inaccurate and uh, um, not helpful. It just it further tightens things. One of the biggest helps for me in doing the metta, and your experience is very common, and I've certainly felt it myself as I was doing the practice, all of the things you mentioned, in terms of how easily the mind could get irritated, of doubts about the benefactor, all of that. What was most helpful to me was the reminder to myself to keep it simple. You know, that I wasn't practicing in order to have these ecstatic feelings of love that were going to be there the whole time. Because that's just an unre unrealistic idealization. That what I was practicing was the simple good wish. Or wishing goodwill for someone to be happy. Bring it, bring it down just to the simplest expression of that good wish. Be happy. So, be safe. What, whatever the whatever the phrases you're using, and in the connection with the simplicity, it became much easier to stay in the flow of it. Doesn't mean that even with that, the mind never went off into a, a hindrance. But I would come back to that simplicity, and it was a relief. Then there was no big thing about how loving am I or. You know, my heart is rotten. I'm just practicing. Be happy. May I be happy. May you be happy. 
And it it eased everything in the practice. We gotta go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.